0: Welcome to the West Steps. The West Steps is a podcast from the Colorado Children's Campaign that explores issues that impact Colorado kids and families. I'm your host, Beza Tades. Welcome to another episode of the West Steps Um, and thank you for joining us for another episode in season four. Um, We have two guests who've been on the podcast before joining us this week, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, Steph, do you want to start?
1: Sure. Hey, everybody. uh, Steph Perez-Carrillo. I uh, used to work at the Children's Campaign as one of the Policy and Partnerships Manager with Les, and I'm happy to be back here for another fun episode with Beza and folks with the West Steps.
0: Yep. Once you work at the Children's Campaign, you always work at the Children's Campaign.
2: Les? Uh, yeah, and this is Leslie Callwell. I am still at the, the Children's Campaign and I'm the Vice President for Education Initiatives.
0: Well, thank you so much for both of you for being here. And today, I think we're gonna try to marry two big topics together and try to get a little bit more understanding on um, some of the K-12 efforts that are happening at the State, Depar- at the State Capitol this legislative session. Um, And at first glance, both topics are gonna sound so far apart from each other, but um, I hope is by the end you understand how interwoven these uh, two issues are and why we need a solution that is transformational. So Steph, um, how would you describe the current state of hunger programs in our state?
1: A small question.
0: Yeah, I I only start with small questions.
1: Well, I'd like to say that I think uh, you know prior to the pandemic, the world's looked a little bit differently, and I think most folks know that. But for for context, in terms of the number of folks that have been experiencing food insecurity, it went from uh, for children specifically, it went from about one in six children who are experiencing food insecurity or hunger to about one in three um, over the course of the pandemic. So it's important to note that hunger has always been an issue, um, but it's more of an issue now that we know uh, you know the pandemic. We're full swing now here. To Two years and there's still an issue of folks having access to um, food and then kind of the infrastructure itself. I think it's undergone a lot of changes in response to the pandemic. And I think to be responsive to what kids and families need. And quite frankly, I think it just was a house of cards in terms of what it, what it showed us um, about our reliance on, on schools and the important service that they provide for kids, not only from an educational standpoint, but from a food security standpoint as well. Um, so I think the state, of, the state of the programs have been really interesting in that We know food service directors have been working tirelessly. Food banks have been working um, hard to ensure that everyone has access to food. And and part of what's been really helpful is having an administration at the federal level that's acknowledged the challenges that families are facing and trying to eliminate as many of the challenges as possible, as many of barriers as possible for folks doing the actual work of serving kids and families uh, food that they need.
0: Uh, So I think my understanding is that we've used schools as kind of the central points of providing food access to children who are in households that are experiencing food insecurity. Um, How would you describe the disparity of food insecurity by race, um, especially in our state? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, unfortunately, we, we've kind of had a disparity between uh, white white kiddos and and kiddos of color. And in that, uh, you know, students of color experience, experience food insecurity at higher rates. And I think part of that is when you look at who's been impacted by the pandemic in terms of lost wages, in terms of lost jobs, in terms of, um, you know, housing security, things that are like really foundational and fundamental uh, for families to survive. Families have lost everything. They've lost family members, they've lost uh, their income. And so with that comes uh, the loss of meeting basic needs. And so when you look at frontline workers, when you look at folks who have really been serving in grocery stores and healthcare settings, it's really communities of colors that have been um you know uh impacted impacted more and i think part of that is because um th- those are the industries that they serve and i think they're they're just been hit the hardest and so what that means is that the same kind of students that um you know are free and reduced price lunch or have typically relied on school meals now rely on school meals more than ever because that's the place where they're getting their nutrients that's the place where they're getting their calories you know the Colorado as a state has made some tremendous moves to um you know pass breakfast after the bill to pass the school lunch protection act that basically provided you know free meals for uh, free and reduced price lunch students and so there's been some tremendous work and with that i think um has meant that we're not really getting at the root cause of hunger which is really happening in the home right like kids shouldn't have to be at school to be fed and we're doing things to support our kiddos whose families are struggling And at the same time we haven't addressed the root cause of why families are still struggling to make ends meet, to put food on the table. And it really boils down to a livable wage. um, And that's a whole nother podcast episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, that is a, that's true. I think that the, the the problem we're trying to solve what we can, but the problem is deeper than you uh, expect. One more question before we kind of jump into the next topic of this conversation. Um, I think whenever we talk about hunger programs or uh, programs that are aiming to mitigate some of um, families that are experiencing food insecurity, we very rarely talk about the quality of the food. We just talk about access of the food. Can you share a little bit about some of the efforts Colorado has made in the last couple of years or lack thereof uh, about the quality of food that we make available to kids and families?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the previous, uh, the previous, previous administration, 44. Um, you know, I think President Obama, Michelle Obama at the time, had wanted to work on on school uh, meal quality, and with that came the passage of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, which I think the effort was to ensure that kids were getting more nutrient dense foods, and and with that, kind of attacking sodium, attacking whole grain, um, attacking you know, um, calcium and milk and uh, flavored milk and flavored beverages. And I think, um, you know, I think the hope behind that was to ensure that we were modeling for kids, what healthy choices around food were. But as you know, we're a kind of a diverse country. We have a lot of cultural richness. And, and with that means that, um, rather than having one kind of definition for what healthy looks like, ensuring that we also have a culturally competent and, and aware food menu as being important. So I know there's been some really great efforts here in Colorado, um, to think through, you know, by way of the blueprint and hunger and the various partners there, how we can ensure that kids not only have access to healthy foods, but are making good choices about what they eat to ensure that they're healthy, right? Like, I think we want that at a fundamental level. And then, you know, beyond that, I think um, the reason that the National School Lunch Program was created, um, you know, was during a really difficult time where I think we were just trying to provide, you know, a mass quantity of of food for kids. And and part of that was because like schools were the places where kids were getting their food. And I think we started getting a little bit smarter about what the contents of that food were, were, how we were crediting those meals. And I think there's some interesting work um, being done through Nourish Colorado and others to think more about how we support locally grown foods and how that results in um, healthier food being fed to kids. And so really, I think the biggest challenge has been in being responsive to the pandemic, how we ensure some of the things, some of the efforts that were put forth in the last couple of years before the pandemic to ensure we had locally grown fresh foods, um, you know, and that we were working with food banks and partnering with other folks so that kids had food throughout the whole week and weekend, um, I think was really inhibited by the pandemic to be responsive to like an increase, a substantial increase in a number of kids that were experiencing uh, hunger. And I think the other challenge, and I think this is less what Les is going to kind of get at is, um, our reliance on how we've kind of used, you know, free reduced price lunch applications and what that's meant for kids who could participate in pandemic EBT or parents that could receive benefits. So over the course of the last two years, you had, um, you know, an administration that I think was really interested in making, um, making it possible for families who would otherwise rely on school meals to receive the benefit. So, you know, Pandemic EBT passed to provide families with a daily benefit of what it would have cost to provide a school meal for kids. And part of the biggest challenge and the reason why we only had about half of the students who were eligible around 190,000 students participate is because we didn't have the data that we've come to rely on for more. It applies to more than school lunches. And the reason we didn't reach the full, you know, student population or all the kids that are in our Colorado schools is because we weren't collecting uh, free, and reduced price lunch forms in schools. We we ask parents to come and bring those and to have them filled out in person as a paper paper application. And we rely on, on that for so many other things. And so during the pandemic when we didn't collect that free reduced price lunch form, it meant that we, we couldn't issue pandemic EBT benefits. And then we had to figure out who was hybrid versus who was remote um, for what amount of time, how many kids. And we had to go through this whole process of working with the Department of Human Services to reconfigure kids that were already enrolled in SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition assistance program and kids that were participating in other public benefits in order to identify them for food, much less our reliance on them for um, school funding, which I think is what Les is probably going to touch. Yeah.
0: Um, Thank you. I think that... uh shows that the complexity of this problem to the point where, you know, no one blanket solution about access or quality is going to fix that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, my next question is going to feel like such a sharp turn from what we've been talking about, but I promise it will connect. Um, but uh, Les, can you tell us what um, the at-risk factor is and how does it currently function and, and what what is happening and what does it mean and how should we understand it?
2: Yeah, so um, I'll try to I'll try to connect this back to everything that Steph just said. So, um, switching gears a little bit, um, when we when we talk about our at risk factor, we're talking about our school finance formula. So the way that we actually allocate dollars um, to schools and students. And so, you know, for a few decades now, we've had something in the formula called the at risk factor. Um, With the idea of sending slightly more funding to um, students who are at risk of below average academic outcomes due to um, economic disadvantage. The issue that we've run into for many years now is how we actually um, identify and account for those students who are from families with low incomes. Here in Colorado, as in many states, um, we use free and reduced price lunch eligibility um, or FRL eligibility. um, and that is our our primary proxy for poverty in school finance, and so um, just to put some details around that, to be eligible for free meals, um, family income has to be at or below one hundred and thirty percent of the federal poverty level. Um, for reduced price lunches, um, they have to be at or below one hundred and eighty five percent of FPL. Um, and as Steph already um, sort of mentioned, you know, there's there's two ways that students can qualify for free or reduced price lunch. One is, you know, their parents or guardians have to complete a paper application um, and submit it to their child's school. There's no online option for that. Um, or they can also qualify through what's called direct certification. So if they're in a category of students that um, is considered vulnerable to hunger because they participate in programs like SNAP or TANF, um, here in Colorado, eligible students are also you know those who are homeless, children in foster care, migrant students. Um, and so those directly certified kids don't have to complete a paper application. They automatically are eligible for free lunch. Um, but, you know, even before the pandemic, we had started to identify some problems with our singular reliance on FRL as our proxy for poverty and school finance. And it was becoming a less accurate and, and sort of adequate way to measure student economic disadvantage. Those problems were greatly exacerbated during the pandemic. As as Steph mentioned, schools were really struggling to collect FRL forms from families. Remote learning was a logistical challenge. Um, There were also these programs where kids were were, um, getting services without the need for forms. And so in both of the last two school years, our at-risk student count was dramatically below State projections, and what that meant was that schools were not receiving the additional funding that they should be getting through the school finance formula because we didn't have an accurate count of of students. Um, there are many other problems with kind of our reliance on FRL, and we don't we don't need to get into that. But um, you know, I think what is exciting looking ahead is that the legislature is is kind of in the process of of hopefully solving this problem. Um, so if do you want me to talk a little bit about proposed solutions?
0: Yes, that would
2: be yeah. Okay. So last year, the um, legislature re-established the state's, uh, it was called the School Finance Legislative Interim Committee. And they that committee contracted for a study of alternative ways that the state could measure student poverty. Um, That study came out last month and um, there was a a committee meeting recently where they kind of narrowed in on, a instead of using FRL, a more multi-pronged approach, like a menu of options sort of, um, that we're really excited about. Um, And so, um, you know, I think the the bill that, that we are hoping is introduced this year that we'll be working on will kind of lay out a process over the next year for how we transition away from our reliance on um, free and reduced price lunch eligibility for school finance um, and, and students receiving additional funding to something else that is um, a little less burdensome for districts and schools Um, is easier for families um, to actually qualify for that additional funding um, and ultimately leads to a more accurate count of of students who are experiencing economic disadvantage in our state.
0: Yeah. Um, Can you say a little bit more about those kind of menu um, suites of solutions that are going to replace how we measure you know, what will replace the the, uh, free and reduced? Like, what what are some of the things that the committee proposed?
2: Yeah. So, the option that they narrowed in on um, is, you know, the the short label for it is identified student percentage supplemented with Medicaid with the inclusion of a student-centered neighborhood weight. And I'll kind of break this down um, a little bit. So, when I say identified student percentage um, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned direct certification. So these are you know kids who are already enrolled in existing programs, such as SNAPS, SNAP, such as TANF. Um, but we would also supplement that program with Medicaid. Um, and and from our work in the children's health space, we know that through, or sorry, though Colorado um, has low participation rates in the programs that are currently included in direct certification, we have a really high take-up rate for Medicaid and SHIP. So, you know, upwards of 90% of eligible kids are enrolled. Um, So the inclusion of Medicaid enrollment in direct certification, we think would have the effect of like automatically capturing a larger number of students who would qualify for those means-tested social services. Um, Then on the other hand, there is, you know, they want to include us, what they call a student centered neighborhood weight. Um, and so this would look at, you know, not just household income, but more, um, you know, like community measures of like wealth. And so this is an approach that has been used in Texas that really like paints a more complete and nuanced picture of need. Um, And it acknowledges that students are really influenced by the conditions of the neighborhood in which they live, regardless of what their own family's income is. So, um, you know, it includes things like homeownership rates, um, educational attainment of parents, percentage of single-parent households, um, percentage of uh, families where English is a second language. Um, But these are additional indicators that uh, capture other measures that affect children's educational trajectories. Um, And it would just, um, like I said, kind of paint a more holistic picture of, of student and community need that could be incorporated into our school finance system.
0: That sounds very inspiring and and seems like it's going to capture the actual need instead of kind of what is possible through what we are able to just collect data on. Um, So, you know, you mentioned a little bit about some of the um, suggested solutions, but um, I wonder if you can both of you touch on some of the solutions that we can anticipate to see that try to solve um, food insecurity in our state especially for our young kiddos.
1: Steph, you want to start on that one? I was unmuting. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that, you know, has come out of this pandemic from a food uh, security standpoint is, is re-upping the conversation around universal school meals and kind of how how we're moving towards that in terms of the cost benefit um, piece. And I think, you know, that's been a conversation that we've we've taken up over, over many years, healthy school meals for all. And I think it's also come up again at, you know, at the federal level, it's come up again here in Colorado because as you think about the costs associated with the programs that we're running in schools, I think, you know, there, there seems to be a lot more benefit and a, a greater push towards universal school meals, not to mention, you know, that being the root cause of some of the other issues we're seeing, you know, when I, when I was a teacher, I remember having kids come up to me after lunch and saying they were still hungry, or even in the morning when they got to school, they said they were still hungry. And so really, I think universal school meals would kind of get at, you know, the issues that we've been working on in terms of expanding uh, school lunches and who we pay for, what what coverage our state provides. So I think that's a big one. And then really, you know, Les alluded to this earlier, but we we know that our enrollment in SNAP as a state in Colorado here has not been um, where it can be. I think we're kind of in the lower echelons in, in terms of other states that do a better job of enrolling kids who are eligible. And part of that is, I think, um, you know, having more of a staffing capacity for our SNAP outreach. You know, Hunger Free Colorado has done some, some tremendous work to to amplify um, SNAP and the importance of SNAP and how it provides not only income for basic food, but how it bolsters the local community and where um, folks can spend and buy groceries. Um, and then you have double up food books and other programs like that, that Nourish Colorado and others have been working on for several years. So I anticipate that in addition to ensuring that we have those SNAP outreach dollars and that we're getting kids enrolled in SNAP, you know, is the re upping of other. Of other programs um, where we're ensuring that we're you know um, procuring local foods, where we're ensuring that we have the um, food pantry assistance grant program, and so I think it'll really come down to the budget and um, ensuring that those important programs that not only like stepped up and were working nonstop during the pandemic can can uh, survive, but that they can thrive and that they're receiving the support they need to carry on that critical work. So I anticipate there will be some bigger policy pushes around universal school meals, and then. Some Some around the budget where we want to ensure programs that have really been serving communities um, have the opportunity to exist in perpetuity and then have the support that they need to keep doing the great work that they're doing. So it's really been heroic work that food banks and others and uh, folks at schools have been doing. And um, we really want to ensure that we're not... um, we're not expecting that they do that in perpetuity. Um, so the, the hope is that that support will kind of alleviate uh, the, the way that they've been operating in the last two years, which has been uh, insane, absolute insanity. And we appreciate all the work that they've done to provide food to our kids and families
2: just a quick add on to Steph's point about universal school meals. There is a bill that's been introduced, which is Senate Bill 87. Um, it's the Healthy School Meals for All bill. Uh, we, the Children's Campaign, are supporting that. It's an effort that is being championed by our partners at Hunger Free Colorado in partnership with organizations all over the state. Um, But it would essentially ensure that every student in Colorado could receive a free meal. Um, It's designed in a way that it really maximizes the um, federal match that the state would get for providing um, meals for all kids. And then, um, you know, there would be a a significant state investment as well. But um, we're excited to see that that bill move forward. And again, it's Senate Bill 87.
0: Thank you so much, both of you, for um, being here. My last question is, if people are passionate about this topic and really want to get involved, how can they get involved?
1: You know, I'm happy to chime in, but Les, you might have some more thinking around the school finance uh, work and all the other components around the at-risk factor. But to me, it feels like you know, getting in touch with your local communities and knowing what help and support they need. I know that at one point during the pandemic, people were like, I wanna bring food to a local food bank. And the the food banks were like, please, we can't actually take the food that you're trying to bring. So getting a better sense of what, uh, you know, organizations that are in community need and what support they might need. I know that there are efforts to support the Marshall fire recovery. And, um, you know, I think depending on what your context is, your local context is, I think folks are always looking for helpers, you know, and I think in terms of the, the work that happens at the legislature, connecting with the organizations that are, are doing this work, you know, the children's campaign is one hunger free Colorado doing that work is another, um, and then always talking to your legislators. They love hearing from you as their constituents more than they love hearing from folks um, like us or folks at the Children's Campaign because you're their constituents. So always an encouragement to talk to your local elected officials, your statewide represented officials. They want to hear from you and your voice matters. This is where I'll
2: put in a plug for uh, the Children's Campaign's Kids Flash newsletter, where we provide updates on all of the timely things that are happening at the Capitol, including um, what's going on with bills like Healthy School Meals for All, and the Overhaul of the At-Risk Factor um, bill. So stay tuned.
0: Thank you so much for both of you for being here and for um, explaining two complicated topics in a way that makes sense. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The West Steps. The West Steps is a production of the Colorado Children's Campaign. If you want to support our work, please visit our website at coloradokids.org. And see you next week. Thank you.